Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2019 festival, historian Professor Frank McDonough talks about his book, The Hitler Years, the first in a new two-volume history of the Third Reich. The moderator is historian Dr Jennifer Wellington, and the episode was recorded at Printworks Dublin Castle on 18th of October 2019. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, I, there's a lot of you here. Um, I hope this is a fun way to spend your Friday night. So um, today, um, um, I'll be chatting to you, and then after we've had a bit of a, a conversation about the book, um, we'll be opening the floor to questions uh, about his book, um, The Hitler Years, and the topic in general. Uh, so um, that's kind of the format, which I'm sure you're aware of if you're um, big fans of the festival. So shall we get going? Yes. All right. So, Professor McDonough, um, I guess the obvious question here is there have been so many books about Hitler, um, you know, for example, Ian Kershaw's two-volume biography, and, like, if you think about books about the Third Reich generally, like Richard Evans' like three volumes on the rise and fall of the Third Reich. So why did you think the world needed another book about Hitler? Well, <laughs> for a start, I'm better looking than them. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, th I think the, um, the difference between sort of uh, Kershaw's book is that Kershaw's book was a, was a, was a biography. Um, Evans's book was three volumes, which began, I think, in 1880 or something. Volume one begins in 1880. So he has this idea there's a long sort of uh, trail from Bismarck all the way through to Hitler, which I don't necessarily agree with. Um, and his, his second book was about 33, 39. His third book was about the war. But his books, he is a social historian. So um, he actually doesn't believe that Hitler made a big impact on the Third Reich. He's more interested in the social and cultural aspects. And his book as well is thematic. You're all aware of uh, the way the books are written, it's thematic. In other words, he looks at various themes. He breaks it up into various themes. So basically, there's a chapter on youth, there's a chapter on film, there's a chapter on women. Um, it's all about social history, really. So that that's his book. Um, Kershaw, uh, his book is rather strange because it's it's a biography of Hitler, but he says at the beginning that it's almost impossible to do a biography of Hitler and that really Hitler was a prisoner of the structure of the Third Reich. So again, we have this guy writing about a biography, but really he's writing a history of, of, of Nazi Germany. So in a way, I think, you know, uh, there are problems with that. Um, if you go back to the type of book that I'm writing here, is it's more of a narrative of the Third Reich, so it's more aimed at the general reader. The idea is that I'm taking you through the blow-by-blow, year-by-year account of the Third Reich. So it's called the Hitler Years, and Hitler Years for a reason, because every year is dealt with separately. So 1933 is dealt with separately, 34, and so on. And so really, you, you go through all of the years specifically all the way through to the, the, the first volume goes from 33 to 39, the peace years, if you like, building up to the war. And then the second volume is the wartime years. So I think if you wanted to look at a book that was similar, I think William Shirer's uh, Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. But again, the problem with William Shirer is it's sort of out of date now. Um, he spends a hell of a, lot, a long time trying to say that Germany has a special path going from Martin Luther all the way through to the 19th century that inevitably leads to Hitler. Um, and also his book is very kind of melodramatic as well. He was a journalist. Um, and it's sort of, his book is, is very vivid, but in the Second World War, because he hasn't got access to all of the sources, because a lot of them aren't available at that time, it sort of dies off. In the last sort of two years, it kind of dies off a little bit at the end. And I, th I thought that the time, given what was happening recently with, you know, Brexit and um, Donald Trump, I suppose, and also, you know, the spread of the right wing as well in Europe as well, that, you know, I think it's, it's, a, it's a good time really, to revisit the whole problem of, you know, why, do, why did the world sort of fall under the spell of these different ideologies 
in the interwar period, not just Nazism, but remember in the Soviet Union there was communism as well, and democracy was in trouble in the 1930s. You know, people, people would say, you know, look at all these charismatic leaders that there were, Stalin and Mussolini and Hitler, and we had, you know, Stanley Baldwin, you know, who sort of smoked a pipe and talked about cricket. So th there was a difference in that way. So I think the timing of, of this book was, was right. And also I'd written extensively on other aspects. Those of you know the work that I've done on the, on the Third Reich. You know, I've, I've written about uh, opposition in the Third Reich. I wrote a biography of uh, Sophie Scholl, um, about 10 years ago and I recently wrote a book about the Gestapo it wasn't really about the Gestapo it was about the victims of the Gestapo so I think that you know I've been teaching uh, as, a, as a university lecturer and a professor for 30 years and uh, as I was saying to Jennifer you know th there is a place if you like for the older scholar to write more generally because the younger scholars tend to write about you know their PhD topics it all becomes a little bit narrow so I think as well you know isn't it, there's a saying isn't there you know that the you know the koala bear is a specialist but the raccoon is a generalist <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I personally think writing up your PhD thesis into a book is a great idea and perfectly acceptable. But <laughs> I was wondering, the point you're making about a narrative, um, you're, you're going through a narrative and you're linking it to what's going on with contemporary politics. And I was wondering, is, is that approach a one way for people to get a sense that in the moment, um, without um, a kind of a predetermined thematic structure, um, how people in the moment were reacting to Hitler or seeing the Third Reich in the same way that we live in the present moment and we see the events that are going on and the figures in the world, but we don't necessarily see their significance. Or I, I, I wouldn't say that it's be, it's not sort of it's not the, it's not written from the perspective of mm. contemporary society. You know, you won't yeah. hear Donald Trump there or Boris Johnson. Uh, don't appear in the book. Um, I'm just saying that's that's the kind of zeitgeist that's going on now. In other words, it's it's something that grows out of what's happening now. And and you know you can, you can take the lessons. I'm not sort of directing you to these lessons. I'm sort of laying out this story, and I'm doing it in a lot of I mean, it's it's in a lot of detail, and hopefully it's accessible. And I'm what I'm trying to do is to give you the the the, the public Hitler. So there's a lot about his speeches in there. So I, I look at a lot of his speeches are in there. And I also look at the private Hitler, what he says to his elite, and also interviews that he gives, uh, how he gives interviews, uh, PR interviews, if you like. You know, it's, it's more or less like he's on a, a kind of PR trip. He does a lot of interviews with um, the Daily Mail, for example. You know, there's about 20 interviews with this uh, George Ward Price. And he gives interviews to American journalists, to French journalists. Um, so there's this kind of, he's trying to sell himself to the rest of the world as a, as a peacemaker. And then when we look at the documents, the German documents privately, we can see that in actual fact, he's a warmonger. He's planning for war. He's planning to sort of unravel the Treaty of Versailles. So I try to give those, those two parts of the story. There you've got the sort of the real Hitler and you've got the public Hitler. And it's sort of, I think it's a parable for today, mm. you know, because we know that a lot of these politicians like Trump have very nasty and horrible private lives, don't they? So there is something nasty going on privately. And I think that same is true of Hitler. And I think that that's why I felt there a narrative where I could build it up. And I, I did, I was saying to you about how I constructed it. Mm. I constructed it like um, a storyboard. Um, I don't know if any of you are like me and like Alfred Hitchcock films. Um, but they are brilliantly plotted. Alfred Hitchcock films are brilliantly plotted because he had, um, he had them storyboarded. Almost every frame of every Alfred Hitchcock film is storyboarded in that way. And I was watching this documentary and I thought, that's what I'm going to do with this book. I'm going to kind of storyboard it so that we get a kind of a whole day by day what happened in the Third Reich and put that in first and then start to build up the narrative from there. And I think because of that, there's a lot of detail there, but it's not detail so it's overwhelming. 
It's just that you find out more because there's more information in there because I've, I've done it in that way. You know, I've used kind of a, it's a famous, there's a famous book in Germany, which is a massive book, which is called The Third Reich Day by Day, which is, gives you a, a sort of diary of what goes on every single day in the Third Reich. So I built it up like that. Um, and, um, you know, I, I've always been interested in this idea of, you know, narrative. I've always been interested in it, but I, I, I've never sort of written a big mega narrative like this before. So it's quite a challenge. It's taken me like four years to write this book. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you were just mentioning about the idea of there being a private Hitler um, who's uh, something of a gangster, and then the, the public uh, Hitler who's giving interviews to the press, who, who's making speeches, who is um, uh, pursuing diplomacy at the same time. Um, how is that revealed, like, through your book? What sort of tensions think, did you find? I think you, I think you can kind of see it in, um, in some little kind of anecdotes. I mean, Albert Speer, there's a great part where Albert Speer decides to join the Nazi party and as you know he becomes Hitler's architect and he becomes uh, very friendly with him you, you could say that you know some people said his relationship with it was almost homoerotic that he that Hitler kind of he loved this tall you know sort of handsome architect and he he liked to sort of get him to show him his kind of his his plans for the future of Berlin but there's a great kind of anecdote where Hitler says to him come, come and see a speech of mine because he says he meets Hitler so Albert Speer says when I met him I thought of him as a kind of unprepossessing person he wasn't very he said he said amazingly you know because he was like the leader of the Nazi party and he's very famous he said but in private he seemed to be unprepossessing he wasn't he said he wasn't very charismatic, he said. He said, he, I, I thought he was rather dull. So Hitler said to him, why don't you come and see, see me give a speech? So he goes to see him giving a speech. And so Hitler says, you can, you can wait in the wings while I give this speech. So Hitler gives this speech. And, and Albert Speer says, first of all, when he starts the speech, he holds his notes and he says he, he drops them on the floor. Um, and he's sort of saying, what is he doing? He's, he's, he drops them on the floor, so he starts to pick them up, you know, and rearrange them, you know. And he looks, he said, he looks pretty incompetent, really. He said, then he starts to more or less stutter through the early part of his speech. And then he said, he starts to say things like, you know, I'm, I, I am just, um, he says, I'm, I never wanted to be a leader. I never wanted to be the leader of this party, you know. He said, fate made me the leader of this party. He said, because we lost the First World War and we were stabbed in the back by Jews and socialists, he said, I felt it was my duty to step forward, he said. I wanted to be the drummer, he said, of this movement. He said, then, he said, in the last five minutes, he takes off on, you know, on why we've got to regain the greatness of Germany. And he says, you know, and he gets towards the end of it. And, he, and at the end of a lot of Hitler's speeches, you know, he used to say, you know, before me comes Germany, in me is Germany, and after me comes Germany. He said, they sit down then. And he said, and then the crowd would roar. And then Hitler would, oh, he'd never come back for an encore, like Elvis. <laughs> he'd never come back for an encore. Because with Elvis, wasn't it? They used to just say, Elvis has left the building. And it was more or less the same with Hitler. He said he moved off, he moved off into the wings. He, he grabbed a, a glass of water, drank a bit of it, and he turned to Albert Speer and he said, how did that go? And Albert Speer said, at that moment, I realized that it was all an act. The whole thing was an act, and he was a kind of supreme actor, that all this passion was manufactured. And I think that's, that's an example of what you see with Hitler, that he often manufactures... Um, he, he often manufactures bullying as well. You know, there are, there are quite a few scenes in the book that could have come from The Godfather. You know, it's, it's when he's sort of interviewing, um, for example, when he interviews Schuschning, who's the Austrian chancellor, um, you know, and he, he brings him to, to the Berghof. That's his sort of, that's his Graceland, if you like, uh, in, the, in the Bavarian mountains. And he brings this Austrian chancellor because he wants him to agree to the union between Germany and Austria. So he brings him there in February 1938. And 
and he, he brings him in a room, he gets him in on his own, and, and he says, oh, it's, and then the Austrian Chancellor, you know, he's actually a, a very unprepossessing guy. He's got little John, sort of John Lennon spectacles, and, you know, and he's, and, and he, he's, he's he, you know, he, he doesn't look like he's sort of played rugby uh, to any great extent. And sort of Hitler gets him in a room on his own, and he says to him, look, once he's in the room on his own, he says, look, listen, I, I want Austria to join with Germany, right? And he said, I want you to do the following. And he says, I want the finance minister to be X. I want uh, this guy to become the vice chancellor. I want this guy to, to be the head of the police. I want this guy to do that. And he says, and by the way, he says, I've already sort of, I, I've written a protocol for you to sign. And so Shushning is like, he's quite taken back by this, you know, and he's, he's quite frightened. And he says, oh, um, I, I, can't, I can't just agree with this. He said, um, you know, I'd have to discuss this with the president. So Hitler says, look, you've got to agree to it now. So he says, oh, I tell you what, look, we'll have a break. We'll have a break for 10 minutes. So he, he has a break and he lets him go out in the corridor. And Ribbentrop says, he's in the corridor, he's in the corridor chain smoking. You can see that he's been through a terrible ordeal with Hitler. And he said, and Hitler shouts down the corridor right past him. He says, Keetle! William Keetle is the head of the uh, Wehrmacht. So he, he brings him and he marches down the corridor in his big sort of army uniform, right? And then, and then, and then he says, Halder! And he shouts for him and he marches down as well. And he said, they march past him. He's there, shushing. With, with his cigarettes like this, you know, really, you know, he's fallen to bits like that. And then Hitler, Hitler, when he gets into the room, Halder and Keetle get into the room and he just winks at them as if, as if to say, I don't actually want to say anything to you. It's all just an act. It's, it's actually a, a, a gangster act, a bully, shushing. And then he says, he, he opens the door, so he says, come in, uh, uh, Herr Chancellor. He comes in, he says, uh, so have you had time to think, think about uh, what, what I said earlier? So he goes into like a, a quiet mode now. He's not like ranting and raving anymore. He says, I tell you what, he says, I've never done this for anybody ever. He said, but I'm going to give you five days to fulfill this list of promises. <laughs> he says, you can take it back to Austria and do that. Um, and, and that's where you see the kind of, that's where you see the bullying Hitler. You know, the Hitler really is a, a gangster and a bully. And what Shushning does, very bravely, I think, uh, he decides that he's going to call a, a, a referendum of the Austrian people. So what he does is he defies Hitler, thinking that the French and the British might back him up on this. And then, of course, when Hitler hears that he's called this referendum, he then gets, he gets his bigger gangster bully, Goring, to ring him on the phone to stop it. And what happens is he then agrees to invite the German army in to occupy Austria. So that's how, the, that's how it happens. He starts off bullying him, um, and, then he, and then he decides that he can, he can occupy it because he defies him in that way. So you see the, the Hitler who, who bullies someone. I think that these scenes... Uh, there's another great scene, which is uh, Harker, which is another bullying part, which is um, Harker is the, um, he's the, he's the president of Czechoslovakia. And so basically what's happened, that those of you who know the history of it, you know, at the Munich, at the Munich settlement, the Germans were given the Sudetenland. This was a kind of horseshoe shaped part of, of Czechoslovakia. And they were given that at the Munich conference. And there was supposed to be an agreement that Germany would guarantee the rest of Czechoslovakia. Of course, Hitler wanted to occupy the rest of Czechoslovakia. But he doesn't want to do it openly by just marching in. He wants to bring Harker. When you go into this kind of narrative detail, it is interesting. And with Harker, he says to Harker, look, I, I want to I, I have a meeting with you, he said. Come, come to the come to uh, the Reich Chancellery in Berlin. He says, tell you what, bring your daughter. He says, bring your daughter with you because he knows he's got a teenage daughter. So he says, and I tell you what, you can get on my special train. Hitler's got this special train. It's this fantastic train. It's got a dining. It's, got a, it's, it's like the, one of the trains from the Orient Express or something. You know, it's fantastically opulent. And he, and he gets him a room. He gets him a suite at the, uh, those of you who've been to Berlin, the Adlon. The Adlon, which is just by the Brandenburg Gate, and he gets one of his uh, acolytes to give the daughter. The daughter's welcomed at the station. There's a full SS sort of military band there. 
She goes back to the Adlon. He goes back to the Adlon. And she's given some chocolates. She's given some flowers, the daughter. And then there's a car to take him to meet Hitler. And he's, he's told to wait outside the Reich Chancellery because the Fuhrer's watching a film. So they say to him, I mean, no, uh, talk about getting you off guard. They say, sorry, President Harker, even though this is a big moment in history that we're going to negotiate the future of your country. Hitler's watching a film, and the film is called A Hopeless Case. <laughs> One of the people you just mentioned, you said, you know, we, we know all this about um, Hitler just basically pretending. Um, this all being a facade. But one of the people who's saying this is Albert Speer, for example. And we, we know, for example, that he's writing these memoirs from prison and a lot of it is about exculpating himself, you know, yeah, saying, yeah, I, yeah. I, you know, I, it wasn't me, I didn't do all these terrible yeah, things. I, yeah. And so how do we believe this? Like, how do we know that any of this stuff is true? Um, like, so what are these sources that you're getting it from and how do we assess what we believe and what we don't well, believe? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of sources that we can look at. We can look at the one of the great things about the Third Reich is that at the end of the war, we captured all the German documents. So we captured all of the all of the war office documents, all of the foreign policy documents, all of the regimental documents from the Wehrmacht. We know exactly what the Wehrmacht was was up to. We captured all those documents. So we've got those documents to look at. You know, like sort of verbatim accounts, diplomatic accounts. We've also got eyewitnesses so, so although you'd say Speer wasn't a good eyewitness mm. we've got Harker Harker gives evidence so Harker himself gives the evidence about this meeting about what happens at this meeting so you know there's no reason for him to lie a lot of them you would say that oh you know all of this we've got the Nuremberg evidence as well which you know you would say oh well they're fighting for their life but some of them, they knew they were going to die. For example, Goring knew that he was going to get executed. So, you know, we can, we can look, we can read between the lines of some of this evidence. So we've also got letters from people that go, we've got correspondence from various people. So we can look at it from, from the perspective of that meeting with Harker. And it kind of gets worse than when I said when Harker is waiting outside for this, this meeting. Then when he goes in, Picture the scene. The scene is the right chancellery, and the right chancellery is built of marble, and it's it's vast. It's you know it's like it's bigger than this. The, the room he's in is 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 bigger than this room, and yet there's kind of a load of chintz settees in one place. And Hitler has you know like standard lamps, and then and he's got all these people sitting around. He's got all of his military men are sitting there. Goring is imagine this sitting with this crowd. Ribbentrop, <laughs> you know they're all in the same room. And then, then, he, then, he says, then he says the same thing to Harker. He says to Harker what he said to Shushning. You know, we've decided that Czechoslovakia can't go on as an independent country. We, we want to occupy Czechoslovakia. And he says, and we, we've, we've written the same thing. We've written up a protocol. We want you to sign it. And, um, and so he says, and we want you to sign it. And, uh, and so Harker says, uh, he says, we're going to march in tomorrow morning, he says, at 9 o'clock. And so Harker says, what do you expect me to do? He says, you know, do you, do you expect me to sort of phone the army and stop, you know, stop them responding to, to, to your attack tomorrow morning? He says, yes, I do. He says, in fact, uh, Herman Goring is going to take you into another room, going to discuss this in more detail. And Herman Goring gets him in a room on his own and says to him, look, if you don't sign this document, we're going to bomb Prague tomorrow morning. And Harker has a heart attack. And falls on, he falls on the floor in front of Goring. And Hitler has his own personal physician called Dr. Morell. So he calls, for, he gives him sort of injections of God knows what, you know, amphetamines and who knows what, cocaine or whatever. Anyway, he comes in, Dr. Morell, and he gives him an injection. Don't know what was in it, you know. But anyway, gives him an injection. And suddenly Harker jumps up then, you know, and he says, right, you know, he's, he's better. And he says, okay, will you sign the form? And then he does sign the form. So, and it's, it, that is actually, these things are going on all the time in the Third Reich, in the private world of the Third Reich. A lot of it is like, it's like gangsters. It's, it is like Don Corleone, you know, the Knight of the Long Knives, where he kills all these people in one night. You've got gangsterism. That's why I think it's fair to call it a kind of criminal regime. It's already a criminal regime, really. Um, it's a pity, isn't it, that 
someone like Chamberlain didn't actually bring this out in his meeting with Hitler, where Hitler acted like a terrible bully, awful bully. And even the British ambassador, who was called Neville Henderson, he was called our Nazi ambassador in Berlin. He was so favorable to Hitler. Even he said, God, Hitler disgusted me the way he behaved in that bullying way. So there was an opportunity to tell him, I think. Yeah, so what I'm wondering about is you're saying we've got all these people who are saying, like, these anecdotes, these people who say what it was really like, but are there limitations to like, that? Because we know, like, Hitler's own papers are destroyed, like, you know, Eva Brown's papers are destroyed. So are there any, like, gaps at the heart of this that you just can't get at? I think that that's why I would say that you, you need to write a history of the Third Reich rather than write a history of Hitler because a history of Hitler... A biography of Hitler becomes a history of what other people thought about him. Okay. So, so what we don't have with Hitler, we don't have his, co- his own correspondence because he, he burned it all. We don't have his... Co- it would be great, wouldn't it, if we had his correspondence with Eva Brown? Then we could sort of see what, what their relationship amounted to, really, because we don't really know what it amounted to. Was it a kind of father-daughter relationship, you know, uncle-niece? We, we don't really know what that relationship was, you know, what... How deep was that relationship? So there are gaps in the personal side of Hitler, I think. But um, this book isn't just about Hitler. It's also about the Third Reich as well. So there's a hell of a lot here about how the persecution of the Jews builds up. So I use interviews from an archive in Germany that's never been used before called the Hagen Archive. It's a brilliant archive. I mean, if there are scholars here, you should know about this. This is a... a, it, It was... a it was a, an archive that was created from the 1960s. So what you've got is about 4,000 people who gave interviews, and they, they, were, they were actually, and they were people who were alive even in the Kaiser's period. So these interviews are quite fascinating. So it sheds new light, you know, because you've got grown-up people mm. who are not... Um, who are not sort of elderly people, because I have interviewed a few. I mean, I've interviewed some elderly Germans who lived this, through this period, but... It is like that old saying about oral history, you know, it's, it's about somebody, you know, talking about the past that they can't even remember and with someone who's, who's gullible enough to believe it. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, um, so you, you mentioned the question of race and obviously ideology is very important in the Third Reich. And, you know, there is this racial project that the Third Reich is all about. Um, how much, like... How do you see that develop through the period that you write about? I think that the, in the two volumes, because I've, I've nearly finished the second one, but in, in the two volumes, I think, I think the first volume is, about, is more about how Hitler is trying to build up the Third Reich and preparing for war. Because, but and remember, underneath, there are kind of two elements of, um, of Nazi ideology, really. There is um, race, Race is, is integral to, to, to Nazism. Um, race by, by being you know, the idea of the master race, the Herrenvolk, that's, that's crucial to Nazism. He wants to create a master race, and that's where things like, you know, like, so therefore some people don't fit in, some Germans don't fit in to the master race. So he has euthanasia policies for them. So the physically and mentally handicapped, they don't fit into the master race. Um, the long-term unemployed, gay people don't fit into the master race, gypsies don't fit into the master race, people who have got other religions, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't fit into the master race, black people, they don't fit into the master race either. So there's a program, if you like, of racial purity going on. He's trying to purify the German nation Mm -hmm. and also involved in race. The Jews are involved in race, but they're a negative race. He wants to clear the Jews out of German society because he believes they are the group who will undermine his national socialism. They're the group who will destroy his, his, his society if they go to war, right? That's race. That's the race side of it. But the other side is space, right? Not space going to the moon. He's interested in living space, Lebensraum, as he calls it. He wants to acquire living space in Eastern Europe largely at the expense of, you know, Poland and the Soviet Union, really. He wants to find living space. And on this living space, he's going to transfer. This master race is going to go and live on this living space. And so then it will become a superpower. And this superpower then will be strong enough 
to take on the rest of the world. So in a way, he's a visionary in the sense of he does think that the future of the world will be these giant superpowers, but he wants Germany to become one of them. So we, those two themes are sort of running throughout the book. In the second book about the war, it's more about the space, the, the search for space. He's trying, if you like, to, to fight a war, to win this living space in the East. That's why, really, he doesn't really want to have a war with Britain. You know, he, or, or, you know, he knows the French will come in, but he doesn't want to have a war with Britain. He sees Britain as a kind of like a, a fading master race. And there are lots of things about Britain he admires, you know, the fact they, it, they built up an empire. He keeps going on about India, you know, and he says, you know, the British, they, they built up India with 3,000 you know, 3, administrators, he says. That's the way I want to run my... Well, that, yeah, there's a colony. Of, well, obviously, they get the idea of Eastern Europe as a colonial project, and they're going to bring in German settlers. Yeah. But I feel like that's cheating. It's the next book, so I don't know if we should talk yeah, about yeah, that now. Yeah, that's right. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> or yeah, not. Yeah, yeah. But my, my, my query was: okay, we all know that this is you know crucial to Nazi ideology, but. Um, is it the, the primary force driving the decisions that are made that you discuss in the book? Or is there a certain amount of flexibility of just running with the contingent plan for now? Or how organised is all of this? I think that in the end, I think you, you find that with Hitler, you, that there is a, there's a kind of plan, but the problem is that he moves away from the plan. You know, he moves in different directions. That's the politician in him. And sometimes he will sacrifice principles. Um, he'll sacrifice principles. For example, he hates communism, hates the Soviet Union. But then again, he realizes that he can isolate Poland and defeat Poland by having a pact with the Soviet Union. So in other words, he's willing sometimes. He's, I, I actually say in the book, you know, Hitler is more flexible than Chamberlain. Hitler is more willing to move away from his ideology if he can gain a diplomatic advantage than Chamberlain. Chamberlain is stuck with his appeasement and he can't give it up, whereas Hitler does. So there's, there's, you see Hitler, the politician, more in the first book. And in many ways, um, you know, he's quite an impressive politician. This is the thing that we kind of, we, we, we sort of see him as this ranting and raving. And that's why I, would, I wouldn't, what I wouldn't do is ever compare someone like Hitler to someone like Trump. You know, this isn't, this isn't someone who blunders around. You know, this is somebody who knows what he's doing. He knows what, and he also knows what he wants. You know, he clearly knows what he wants and, and, and he knows the ways in which he's going to get it. And he knows also that you've got to compromise and you've got, and sometimes, and he compromises quite a lot. Well, he's often um, entering into various uh, alliances, if you like, with kind of reactionary conservatives yes. who are like monarchists. He's definitely not a monarchist. So how far does that go? Well, I think, I think also, I think you, you have to understand the Third Reich in another way, which I try to bring out in the book, that you can't see the Third Reich, you know, the way people say, oh, it's Nazi Germany. It actually isn't just a gang of Nazis, right? And we have this idea, you know, these Nazis and these brown shirts who are, you know, sort of the brutal street fighters. In actual fact, they don't get anywhere near the, the centre of Nazi power, right? For example, the most sort of Nazi of the Nazis is Ernst Rohm. He's the head of the stormtroopers, and the stormtroopers have been his bully boys who've been kicking the communists around on the way into power. But they're not going to get to the top of society as far as Himmler, the head of the SS is, they're not qualified enough. Hitler, you know, Himmler wants the Herrenvolk. He wants the, the highest ranking people as far as he's concerned, R having racial purity and all the rest of it. He doesn't want street fighters. In fact, if you look at the SS, this is, this is something that is not well known. The SS was full of people who went to private schools. It was full of people who had degrees. It was full of people who had PhDs. The Einsatzgruppen, they were the people who killed in the Second World War, these, these killing squads. 45% of them had a PhD. You know, these were not these brutal Ernst Rome street fighters. These were people who were, you know, they were highly educated. They, they had a clear view of this race. They took on this racial policy. They believed in this idea of race quite strongly. They were anti-Semitic, deeply anti-Semitic. In that way, it's interesting that the Gestapo was full of ordinary policemen, but it was run by the SS 
leaders, they were the head of it, and they were trying to inculcate these Nazi ideas downward. So that's an interesting aspect, I think, that comes And of that course, it's Rome in the essay, they get purged in, and, and the, uh, Yeah, and when you were saying about the, the conservatives, the conservatives, remember, what you've got to remember about Hitler's Germany is that when you look at um, the French Revolution, if you remember, you know, Mary Antoinette, you know, she, she, she gets her head knocked off, doesn't she? <laughs> Um, Louis the Sixteenth, he gets killed, doesn't he? I mean, I mean, Lenin was like Wolf. Does anyone remember Wolfie Smith after the revolution? Everybody up against the wall, shot. You know, what does Lenin do about the the the, the Russian royal family? Put, he does put them up against the wall and shoot them. Right, Hitler doesn't put the ruling class like that up against the wall and shoot them. Instead, he has to have a collaboration with them. He starts off with a collaboration between uh, Hindenburg. And then he has a collaboration with the army. So in other words, the army, which is an independent force, these people, you know, as Hitler, even in the war, after, after they try and kill him, after the bomb plot, he says, I have just realized, he said, none of these people are Nazis. <laughs> you know, they're all conservative landowners. He said, every single one of them. He said, every single one of them is called Von. It's Von Stauffenberg. It's Von this, it's Von that, he said. And, and these are all the people who tried to kill me. And so you've got the, the aristocracy at the top, you've got the army as well, and big business. They're the, they're the elements that run the Third Reich. You know, and Hitler, far from being a socialist, you know, he's very much in favour of capitalism. You know, in Hitler's Germany, he's very much in favour of capitalism. Capitalist business does very well. Monopoly capitalist business does even better. A good example of this is IG Farben. IG Farben is a chemical uh, company and IG Farben is the 485th richest company in the world in 1929. And in 1942, it's the third richest company in the world. And IG Farben, it's a synthetic chemical producer mainly, right? But it also produces something else. It produces something called Cyclone B, which is used in the extermination process. And what a lot of people don't realize that the, you know, there's always a, 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 a capitalist Nazi collaboration. I mean, we see that in Schindler's List, don't we? You know, if you look at Schindler's List, Schindler is a capitalist, right? Schindler is a capitalist businessman who's making a lot of money out of these uh, slave laborers, right, that he gets who happen to be Jewish. Okay, he's saving some of them, but he's part of the whole system, isn't he? And at the higher level, the system works like that. I mean, take Auschwitz-Birkenau, Birkenau is the rubber plant owned by IG Farben, and Auschwitz is the, is the killing centre. <laughs> Both of them built and paid for by IG Farben. So IG Farben, uh, you know, they get the concession of having their rubber plant at Birkenau, and in return they build, they build the, the extermination camp for the Nazis. So there's a private... Nazi kind of collaboration that goes on there. And you, but you've also been talking about the idea that you know Hitler is, is really smart, he's manipulative, um, some of these senior Nazis are also you know, strategic, manipulative, willing to jettison principles in, in pursuit of very strategic aims. But how much of this is actually uh, the fact that large groups of capitalists, um, you know, monarchists, um, reactionaries, conservatives, actually are themselves happy to go along with this and enable the entire project for their own aims. I think that's a good point because I think that when you come, when you come to when it's all over, when it's all over, then, you know, they've all got to come up for an excuse, haven't they? We, they everyone can see Belson. Everyone can see what happened in Auschwitz. Everyone can see the, the dead bodies. And so all of these people who did collaborate, you know, the kind of... Um, the, the ordinary German, they, they call them the ordinary Germans who went along with Hitler and in the end they become part of it. People like Kietl, mm -hmm. and you know, Kietl wasn't a Nazi, but then he becomes Hitler's leading general, you know, Yodel, people like that. And at the Nuremberg trials, they're asked, you know, they say, you, you participated in these atrocities, you know, didn't you know what was going on? And they say, well, we couldn't disagree with the Fuhrer, you know. Other people say, oh, we were only taking orders this was, this, was the, this was the mantra. The mantra was, we were only taking orders. It was a criminal regime from which we took orders. But now we know that, you know, the Wehrmacht took part in these massacres in, the, in Poland. They took part in the massacres in the Soviet Union. They were not against, actually, the attack on Poland. 
a lot of those officers admitted later that they did dislike Poles, they did dislike Bolshevism, you know. So we, we have this, and they also thought of the West as, you know, in the end, they, were, they wanted to surrender to the British and the Americans because they saw them as like, oh, they're superior, they're, they're Democrats, they'll look after us better. So I think that that, that, that is a, a terrible thing about the Third Reich is the way that it, it, took, it took a long time. I don't think, I think only after unification did Germany start to do away with this idea that they were taking orders. They were not taking orders. They went on this moral sort of... Um, you know, downfall themselves. They collaborated with them, like you were saying. There was, a, we, we need to see it more, and I think you can, I try to bring that out. We need to see it more as, as a collaboration of how the conservatives and the, you know, the, what we would see as the backbone, the middle class, how much they go along with the regime. And I said that about the SS, didn't I? These are nice, well scrubbed middle class boys who end up in the SS in these high positions. They go from, you know, the, in Britain, they would have gone to Eton and Oxford, for example. They're the kind of people who Himmler wants to run his SS in that way. And there's something about it, you know, that there's a terrible, I mean, there's a film, a very good film with Viggo Mortensen. Uh, has anyone ever seen it called Good? Has anyone seen it? It's called Good. And what it's about is it's about this guy who starts off, he's quite a liberal from the Weimar period, and he ends up working for Goebbels Propaganda Ministry. And then he meets someone who's also a trendy from the Weimar period. And he changes as they meet together. Later he finds out that he's changed. And then and then he starts to laugh with him and joke with him about the Fjord. And he says, Oh God. He said, please a piece incompetent. He says, What are you talking about the Fjord to me like that? You know, in other words, and he, his friend realizes, my God, he's been won over by this group. It's that thing of careerism, you know. Some people who have a good job, and I'll say this as, a, you know, I'm a professor in a university, and I suppose we've all got this idea in our heads when we read, especially me, when we read about Nazi Germany, what would I, you know, that's the question I think I'm trying to answer. What would I have done had I lived there? Now, if I look at what academics do, they were Gentiles, not the Jewish academics, because they were thrown out, weren't they? The Gentile academics tended to go along with, with the system. A guy called Mienka, he wrote, he wrote a, a, an article which shows the historians who wrote on liberalism in the Weimar period and how they stayed in their jobs in the Nazi period. And they start writing pro-Nazi stuff. And then he shows what happens to them when the democracy comes back in 1949. They're writing about democracy. And that's the problem, you know. Um, I mean, we, I, I always go back to that, the famous quote of Karl Marx. You know, Karl Marx says, you know, the bourgeoisie will always compromise with the rulers. And we see that we see that in Nazi Germany quite a lot. And it, 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 it is a collaboration in a way. And it's, it, that's the kind of sad part about it. Is these are, these are civilised people, you know. And the other thing I think that comes into it is that don't think that culture is a protection against extremism because it's not. Culture is not a protection against extremism. And Nazism shows that just because you like Oscar Wilde and because you like Beethoven, right, doesn't mean to say that you can't be evil. Heydrich was an accomplished pianist. He had a piano in his office, which he used to play. He'd play sort of Mozart sonatas in his lunchtime, right? In the evening, he'd go to the opera. He was very much a reader of poetry, right? And he was a monster. So that's, that's the other thing about, about uh, Nazism. You've got very high cultured people who will murder people at the same time. That's what's, that's, I think, what, why it's so fascinating, you know. But at the same time, writing about this, do you end up getting a bit depressed? I mean, I, I know that when I teach, I teach a, a course um, which deals with, with um, general survey on genocide to undergraduates here in Dublin. And I always get to the point where we're talking about this and you have a, a room full of students and you basically say, look, how many of you think that you would be resisting? And heaps of them think that. And then you say, well, I'm sorry, guys, but statistically, maybe you did. Yeah. Like the one person in the room. And then maybe you guys just sort of kept your heads down and maybe you four guys over there would be active um, you know, and energetic Nazis, you know. And there's also all the studies about, for example, the, the you know, the Browning on the order police on the Eastern Front, right? A lot of those guys wanted to have a police career after the war. So, like, yeah. okay, I guess we have to go out and shoot a yeah. hundred Jews now. Yeah. Um, 
but so just if, if you're immersed in all this stuff all the time and you've written so many books on the topic, how do you cope with this? Well, I think, I mean, it, it, sometimes, I mean, I think, right, I think what I do find harrowing is uh, writing about the, the Holocaust. I find that very harrowing. I mean, the, when I was writing about the Holocaust for the, the second volume, I mean, that is very harrowing because it's, it's sort of, you can't somehow believe that human beings would, would believe these things and you can't believe that they would do these things. And, and you, you sort of, you're trying in some ways to kind of, because you've got to as a, you know, as an historian, though, the, the famous uh, saying about the historian that the good moral, if you can see what I'm saying here, the good moralist makes a bad historian. Because if, if you've got a moral framework to look at the past, you'll keep saying, he's a monster, he's good, he's bad, he's good. And then you end up writing terribly sort of awful history that just starts to judge people. Remember, history is not a judgment History is an investigation. It's an investigation of, of, of the motives of people. Why did they do this? And what I find is that normally I can sort of get around them, the kind of motives of most people, but sometimes these people kind of defeat, they defeat you. Um, I'll give you one example, uh, which is horrific. The Himmler had a chair that was made out of the, of, the, of the skeletons of people who died in the extermination camps, and it was varnished, and he had that in his house. I mean, how does an individual end up wanting something like that? You know, and, and, and then you sort of cut off. You think, I, I, can't, I can't really get to but grips with that's also with... the end point, right? Because yeah. a lot of this book is about how it, it, this you, gets well, yeah, normalised. It, exactly. Um... Well, I think the problem is that, and I think that what I'm trying to say is that people like Chamberlain and people like the New York Times and the Daily Mail, what they do is they normalise Hitler. So Hitler doesn't become, he could have become a hate figure. And, he, and if they brought out some of the bullying that went on that was known about, but they didn't do that. They tried to portray him. I mean, what's horrific about when you look back is the way he's, he's dealt with in the British press. He's always Herr Hitler. You know, he's never Hitler. He's always uh, Mr. Hitler. You know, and he's treated with sort of, uh, you know, vast respect, you know, as, as if he's sort of, you know, as if he's, he's, he's on the way to bringing peace that this man wants peace, and I think Chamberlain is the worst case of that. You know, deluding the British public, coming back from Munich, having known this man behaved in a totally brutal way, and waving this piece of paper over the head saying that he wanted peace, which Chamberlain knew he didn't want peace. And that's, what, that's the thing that I think that sort of builds up slowly in the first volume. And then, this, trust me, the second volume is pretty horrific, because it's the war as well, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, I think we have um, our signal for um, questions from the audience. Does anyone have any questions I'd like to ask? Um, yeah. Uh, sorry, um, Frank, just yeah. on a couple of the points you made there as regards uh, Hitler's uh, kind of uh, tactical nuance when it came to politics. Um, do you feel, uh, after uh, working on both volumes, that he, the kind of, the kind of um, act you said he portrayed in the Spear anecdote, was he exploiting both at home and abroad this view that people may have had of him and ideas that were already there? So, for example, the kind of hate culture of the Jews and socialists in, within Germany and then this idea that he was an incompetent kind of buffoon type of thing outside of Germany to get where he wanted to go? Or um, did that just happen by chance? Was like What I'm really asking, was there that kind of level of hate within Germany towards these groups of people already and he exploited it or did he conjure it up himself? It's a good question because I think that, you know, what people say is that you, you can't actually get people behind prejudice unless that prejudice is there. All you can do is sort of bring out and magnify the sort of prejudices that were there. And I suppose he had license, didn't he, to bring out and magnify this. In his speeches, you don't see this kind of rampant hatred towards these groups in his, his early speeches because he's trying to project himself as like a peacemaker you know he's he's, he's always talking about you know um, even when he actually takes 
civil rights away from the Jews under the Nuremberg laws. He presents that to the world as, but this is a settlement for the Jews. Now they know where they stand. Uh, they know that we don't want them here. Maybe they'll leave Germany. Maybe other countries will take them. So he tries to present something that is abominable for the actual people who are suffering from it, but he presents it in a good way. Take the communists. He takes all of the power away from the communists, but he says, but these people were exploiting the working class, so that's why I'm taking away their rights. So he, he, he presents everything in a kind of... Everything that's negative, he presents as a kind of positive in the way of his own ideology. Even when Roosevelt, for example, Roosevelt in 1939 sends him a telegram with a list of countries and Roosevelt says, do you intend to um, invade any of these countries? And he lists basically every, every country you can think of in Europe, Denmark, you know, uh, France, Italy, you know, you name it, Soviet Union. And, and, and Hitler goes through them all and says, no, he says, uh, well, I, 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 he says, I, I've, I've contacted all the governments here and none of them think we're going to invade them. He said, I even sent um, a letter to uh, Eamon de Valera, he says, the Irish um, president, he said, and he sent me a letter back and he said, I said, he said, I'll read it to you. He said, I'm more frightened of the British than I am of Hitler. <laughs> so he completely, what he does is he completely, see like that, you know, and he, and he says, oh, by the way, he says, oh, just to add something, he said, um, there were four countries on your list, Mr. Roosevelt, which were actually controlled by the British and the French, <laughs> including India <laughs> and uh, Palestine, <laughs> you know, so he, he, he tries to turn uh, you know, a negative into a positive. And also he always has, he's a moral relativist, so he see the way he says, and then he says about, oh, you're going to take over all these countries. He says, oh, Mr. Roosevelt, what happened to all those native Indians? What are the lessons that we need to learn uh, in our, what appears to be, fractitious world now where... Uh, events we appear to be hanging on the brinks and we listen to sound bites that are, you know, they, they sound very belligerent. How can we not repeat I th you what know, the Nazi regime you know, perpetrated? I mean, you know, we all, you know, we all like a quiet life. We all like to keep our heads down. But I do really think that... Um, you know, we you have to stand up. You know, I, I really do think that. You know, as much as you know, I want to watch the football on a Sunday afternoon. I think I think we we need to stand up against these 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 issues. You know, we've got to stand up earlier for this. You know, I even say you know people are laughing now about you know the Extinction Rebellion and all that. But you know, the environment. You know, you know Greta Thunberg's right. The environment is going to be destroyed. You know, I've got grandchildren, and you know, and the environment is going to be destroyed. We do. Have have to stand up against some of these issues you know and you know I, I do think that the, the way forward is for people to you know yeah let's have you know you know go on demonstrations let's protest let's let's have petitions let's try and make these politicians listen to what we want to say and to stop it because in the end we you know in the end the truth is that you know if people had got out in the streets earlier there and people had stood up to it earlier, then we wouldn't have needed to kill all those people in the war itself. My dad, he, he was lucky he survived. He was in the Navy. He was torpedoed three times, I think. He, he survived. A lot of people didn't survive, did they, uh, in, in that conflict? You've got to look and say, you know, we live in dangerous times, and perhaps, you know, these people who are standing up now, like people, you know, young people like that, inspire me, someone like Greta Thunberg, and you get all these horrible, hideous people like, you know, what's he called, Joan Hartley Brewer or something like that, you know. And those are the kind of people who were around in the 1930s. Oh, look at this. She, she's manipulated. Oh, blown up. you know, that, 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 to me, that's a shining example of somebody who's, who's saying, look, we've got to do something, right? And I think if more people had stood up then and done something, then maybe we could have, we could have got policy to stop him earlier, you know, really, because... What happened was we built him up as a PR. He, we, we listened to his PR campaign because his PR campaign was good. As you see in this book I've done, his PR campaign was great. He did sound like he was a peacemaker. He did sound like somebody who was reasonable. I think we've got to watch out for that. The most dangerous person is somebody who is presented on a, on a PR campaign as, you know, reasonable 
you know, oh, a bit of a joker, you know, that's always a good one, isn't it? You know, usually, you know, someone who's a bit of a joker is probably a, a, a bit of a nuisance to the world, in my view, you know, because the world isn't, it, it isn't very funny what's going on in the world now. We don't want people who are, you know, we've had these people in the past, haven't we? That was the way politics, those of you who are as old as me will remember, you know, that's the way politics used to be conducted didn't it everything was a big joke everything was something to be to be laughed about you know i think that the issues are so serious now in the world and the world you know i mean i say it again but you know the world is shifting i'm telling you the world is shifting to the right you look at someone like orban in in uh, in hungary you know you look at putin you know banning gay people you look at what's going on in africa you look at what's going on in south america now in brazil you've got a really right wing you know these things are happening right now you know the the the, the brazilian uh, prime minister he's really right wing he's he's virgin on 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 being a fascist you know the, what i'm saying is right wing you know what look even germany itself you know it's, it's terrifying you know 21 percent are voting for this alt right you know, alternative for Deutschland. It's basically, a, you know, a neo-Nazi organisation. You know, uh, France. You've got you've got Le Pen in France, haven't you? The Italian populist who's now a prime minister. You know, we're living in. You know, we've got Trump, haven't we? You know, Trump possibly isn't as right wing as some of these other individuals, but he's the leader now of the free world. And is the world going to move back to? I mean, let's face it, the liberal. The liberal now is, is sort of not so much in the middle of the road. He's basically getting their heads trampled on now. The liberal is seen as somebody who doesn't make any difference in the world. And that's a sad, that's a sad situation to be in, isn't it? When liberalism, something that's about, you know, tolerance and, you know, uh, equality and all that, that's being laughed at now. It's sort of being thrown in the bin. Liberalism is the thing, actually, I worry. Because remember in the interwar period when Hitler was around, it was liberalism that was getting destroyed. We've had a lady out the back. Yeah. Oh. Uh, first of all, Donna, uh, it's great to have you here, and look, we look forward to your forthcoming book. I was intrigued there uh, because at, at the very beginning of your remarks, um, I'm, coincidentally, I'm actually just finishing Richard Evans's first volume of his trilogy. Yeah. And I suppose the, the older we get, we're trying to um, understand more fully uh, material historical events that we were taught at school. And I, I, I'm intrigued there. You see to discount because Richard Evans does make the point, apart from the standard, as, as, as we know, uh, racism, um, Versailles, the First World War, etc. Uh, he does make the point that um, people were reminiscent of Bismarck, uh, mm. who was there, and you go back in the old medieval period when you had principalities and city-states squabbling, and you had to get the Pope to resolve, issue, resolve matters. Uh, he united Germany. He actually, apparently, as I understand it, brought in the rudiments of the um, welfare, welfare state. But I was intrigued there at the very beginning. You seem to discount uh, the tracing back to Bismarck's time and harking back to strong leadership. And fast forward to explain why PhDs were, were, were behaving the way they did. I think that what I'm trying to say is, I mean, there's this, there's this old way of looking at history, which is that we need to find the causes but what happened and we need to go back to find the causes and then we go back and we go back and we go back to find the causes of, of this and obviously you know there are long-term causes right of, of all problems but you know the, the danger with going back is that you sort of say you know what caused the second world war well you know, probably hitler caused the second world war and then someone will say hang on a minute but wasn't it due to Chamberlain as well? Because he, he followed the policy of appeasement. So let's go back and look at that. And they'll say, hang on a minute. Wasn't it the Treaty of Versailles? Because that caused the problems that brought about appeasement. So you start going back to that. And they say, well, hang on a minute. Wasn't it the First World War? Because the First World War caused all this eruption, which caused Versailles, which then caused appeasement, which then caused Hitler. And then you go further back. And uh, I think it was A.J.P. Taylor said, he said, the problem with it, he said, is you end up saying, well, if Hitler caused the war, what about Hitler when he was in Vienna? He tried to, be, he tried to become an artist. So he applied to become um, an artist at the Vienna Conservatoire. So he said, ah, but, but he got turned down. He got turned down. So his, his ambition to become an artist was thwarted because he was rejected 
by the Vienna Conservatoire. So, he, so AJP Taylor said, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you who caused the, the, the Second World War. It was the admissions officer at the Vienna School of Art. <laughs> because if he hadn't rejected them, he'd never gone into politics. So I tend to think of, of short-term causes are more important and long, I tend to think, you know, the short-term causes are more important than the long-term causes. We can go back and say, you know, it was his childhood and all the rest of it. But I think we've got to say, what was the actions that were going on at that particular time? And a lot of things that happen, and I'll say this now, it's, it's, not, it's not, it's it's the fallibility. We see it now with this Brexit debate, don't we? It's the bad decisions that change history it's the bad decisions that change history. And it's th those are to do with individuals making those decisions. And those decisions are not, it's not like people are saying, oh God, you know, it's like you and your life and me and my life tomorrow. Say, God, you know, but what would my dad have thought of this? <laughs> you know, what would my uncle Freddie, he's dead now, he's been dead 25 years. Well, what would he have done in this situation? And the truth is we react to what's going on now. And I think that as historians, we need to get away from this, when I was at school, we used to do that. We used to have the causes of the of the of the, we used to we used to lay out the causes of the French Revolution and all that. And I remember when I was at school, you know, and and, and I remember being at school, and they'd say, um, "Oh, Napoleon!" I remember being at school, and they said, "Oh, Napoleon!" And we destroyed Napoleon. That was good. And I remember being in class and saying, "But hang on a minute, wasn't Napoleon like against monarchy and?" <laughs> You know, wasn't he, wasn't he trying to take over Russia? And if he'd have taken over Russia, wouldn't he have destroyed the Tsarist regime? And maybe it's my way my mind works. And then we wouldn't have needed the Russian Revolution. We would have needed the, the Second World War. You know, you can go back, can't you, to centuries and say it's all down to Martin Luther, for example, racism. You can say that. Anti-Semitism goes back to Martin Luther. I think that's, that's the problem with it, I think. I think that the short-term causes always outweigh for me the long The long-term causes are good to supply a structure, but I think it's the short-term causes that really change history. We've had this lady waiting for ages. Thank you for such a, a really fascinating uh, talk. I must admit you're the first person that I haven't studied this period in detail, but that you mentioned and emphasized so much the high level of education that the, the people had of this. I, I, you know, I'm amazed at that, that, that these people had PhDs and all the rest of it. Yeah. But I always used to say of the German nation that if you think of the people they produced, such as Beethoven and all the Goethe and all those famous writers and yeah. everything, they were highly sophisticated culture mm. as was within the African terms Rwanda mm. and overnight Rwanda sort of had this frightful massacre of hatred in the most deep way and apparently in Rwanda for example they were into retreats and they were all very religious and the nuns and nuns and priests and people kill people so I wonder how have you any antidote I wonder why because nowadays when there's racism in society, it's often to do with poorer people out of work and say, oh, all these black people or brown people are coming in and taking our jobs. It's often at a worker's level, it seems to me nowadays, this racism in society among general people. But there, it seems to be in the high-level cultured people. So what have you got to say about what we should do to make sure that we, in this room at least, who are relatively, probably mostly reasonably well-educated people, what should we do to change the culture, make sure the culture we live in doesn't inspire that in the future? Well, education, you know, it's, it's sort of education is not a protection against being a nasty person, is it? You know, it, that's my... <laughs> I mean, <laughs> haven't, haven't, haven't gone around the world, you know, in my life. I, you know, understand, you know, you can be very highly educated and they're really horrible git you know it doesn't it doesn't go together you know there's a difference between you know um emotional education isn't there and there's a difference between that you know a lot of people you can i always say you know you can buy an education but you can't buy intelligence intelligence is something you can't buy you can buy an education you can be educated you can be coached to be better at what you do um and you know the problem is that our education system my pro i always think and I, you know maybe i'm an old hippie here but when i'm marking these essays i do feel sometimes i think 
this is wrong. <laughs> you know, look at me. You know, I might as well have a robe on, might I? So, oh my dear, oh this is terrible. You know, and I really feel as though we, you know, like our education system builds up this idea of a hierarchy, doesn't it? Like you're not quite coming up to the mark here, you know. And and it sort of builds, I think, this this kind of sort of a way of sort of wanting to go up the ladder. You know, I want to get good marks from you, Jennifer. Please, is my essay really good? Please say it's good. And I think that, you know, we do venerate the idea of, of getting to the top of whatever it is, you know. And maybe we should look at, you know, you know, the people who really matter, you know. I always think, you know, in the morning, I, I sometimes get the bus, and I think, this bus driver's more important than me. <laughs> he's, get, he's getting all of us to work in the morning, you know. And a lot of people, you know, nurses and people who do these jobs, you know, the, the, the emergency services, you know, when you see these terrible things happening and you see these guys, you know, they're going in there, uh, you know, in flat jackets into, into some, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, department store or something and they, they're, they're risking their lives. You know, I think we, I think we venerate the wrong people, to be honest. And I think we venerate, you know, eye qualifications or celebrity or things like that. And I think we've got our, our priorities the wrong way around, really, I think. I think that's, that's really, the, really the problem. Uh, well, thank you. Um, thanks very much. That's been fascinating. Um, I thought perhaps just before we finished, you could just tell everybody um, when the book's out. Well... <laughs> Yeah, the book comes out on the 14th of uh, November. You can get it. It's on Amazon. I think it's on a Kindle for about £7.99, and it's on Amazon. I think it'll come down in price, because usually with my books, when they come out, they then go... <laughs> <laughs> I'm just bragging. <laughs> they they start to fall in price. You know, I think I think the one on the Gestapo is now like £4.99 or something like that. <laughs> All right, well... Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank, thanks for coming. Thank you for coming. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. You can find out more about the festival on dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and by following us on Twitter, where we're at HistFest. 